Well, this morning we are going to return back to the Gospel of Matthew. As we begin this morning, I want you to consider, as you think about the text as we're going to get into it, but I want you to consider how it is that you came to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, perhaps some of you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, you have not accepted the gift of salvation, and if that is the case, then I would make my impassioned plea to you. Don't wait another moment. If this is the last day that you're going to be on earth and you don't know when that day is, if this is your, the day of your salvation, then please do not turn from that. Understand that all of us have sinned, including you and including me. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us are, are worthy of God's judgment because of His righteousness and holiness. And sin needs to be forgiven. The good news, the gospel, is that Jesus Christ, who is God himself, God in human flesh, has come into this world to save sinners by giving his life, by dying on the cross to pay for sin. He died on that cross and rose again the third day to bring bring life to all who would repent and trust in him. And so, again, if that is you this morning, if you've never trusted in Jesus, please hear the words that I'm telling you. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And the Bible says you will have eternal life. Many of you who are sitting here have already done that. You have put your trust in Christ. The body of Christ, the church, is made up of those who do trust in Him and who have been born again, regenerated by the ministry of the Spirit unto new life. They've heard the news of the gospel. They've acknowledged their own fallen condition. They've turned from their sins and they have trusted in Jesus. And so for you who have put your faith in Christ and been born again, how did God use someone else to lead you in the faith? Or how did you come to faith? Some people come to the faith by simply sitting down and reading the Bible. I don't hear as many of those kinds of stories. I did hear a story of a man one time who was an avowed atheist, and he and his buddies uh, were going across country on a, a tour to go to California. And while he was in the car for the, a week or ten days or two weeks, however long it takes to go to California, his buddy had a, a Bible in the glove box. He was bored and decided to read something. He grabbed it, started in Genesis 1, plowed through the entire way across California, and when he got to California, he was a Christian. He had read the Bible, he had understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, he realized he was a sinner, and by the time he got to the, to the western seaboard, he was a believer. But most people I've talked to, they have not come to faith uh, always through those same means, even though those means are powerful. They don't always come to faith through evangelistic sermons from people like Billy Graham or John Piper or R.C. Sproul. I do know that there's someone in this church who was led to faith in Christ by listening to a Paul Washer sermon. I always love to hear stories like that. But most believers that I have met, and possibly that you have met, have heard the gospel and been converted through the faithfulness of a friend or a family member or a co-worker or even a spouse. Usually God uses the normal rhythms of our lives and the, the regular people around us to lead us to saving faith. And when you heard the gospel and you'd receive it, what were you receiving? What were you receiving? Well, you were receiving the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life promised to you in the gospel made way by Jesus Christ. The truth is, it's not always the big, important, famous evangelists who are doing the gospel work. God also uses the timid and the weak and the stuttering believers to advance His kingdom. I've heard stories of many believers who have come to faith in Christ 
through the very meager means and faithfulness of other people, people who barely stumble and stutter their way through the gospel, and yet the gospel still has the power of God to salvation to those who would believe. Rather, the Apostle Paul even speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 1.26. He says, and he's talking to the church, For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many of you who are wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Therefore, beloved, that encourages us in the faith, therefore, keep sharing your faith. There are not many of us who are wise and noble and of high status. Many, many, many of us are very timid and weak and small And God loves to use people like you and me to advance his kingdom. So keep being faithful to share your faith with other people. Share the gospel. Give your testimony. Do the work of the ministry as the Lord has led you. Because you never know what God might be doing in the midst of your conversations. And through your faithfulness, you don't know what kind of reward you're going to receive. You might get to heaven and see people around you and hear their stories. And they'll say, I actually came to faith because of something you said. Really? I don't know what kind of influence I'm going to have or you're going to have, but we're going to get to heaven, and I'm guessing it's going to be a little bit different than we might think on earth. And contrary-wise, there might be many who get to heaven and think that they had a profound ministry because of their worldwide impact, and markedly few might be saved. The truth is that only God knows. Only God knows how many people get saved, who gets saved, when they get saved, how they get saved. Only God knows. But we are called to be faithful See, oftentimes we think of the apostles, we think about them as being these big, strong, mighty men. All the apostles, capital A, apostles, who did these amazing things for the Lord. And while, yes, they did amazing things for the Lord, it wasn't because they themselves were amazing. Rather, it's about who Christ is. Christ is the one who was amazing through their faithfulness. And as the Lord prepares to send these apostles out and bring them into the mission field, He has an encouragement for them, and that's where we left off last time in Matthew chapter 10. So if you have your copy of Scripture, turn to Matthew chapter 10, at the very end of Matthew 10. We left these brothers, these disciples, at the end of Jesus' discourse. He was just getting ready to send them out into the mission field for the first time. Up to that point, it had only been Jesus doing the work of ministry. Now he is deputizing these men. Now it's been some time since we've been in Matthew's gospel. We've had lots of different events and things going on in church and different teaching opportunities. And so it's going to be some time here. But we're back in Matthew. And I want to recap where we are. Again, Matthew 10 records Jesus sending the 12 disciples. Matthew himself records their names in verses 3 and 4. We see them. And after he records the names, he also includes that Jesus is sending them out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And they're preaching the good news of the kingdom. So they're not going to the Gentiles just yet, all the non-Jewish people. They're only going to Israel, to the, to the uh, Jewish people, to bring the gospel to them. Now, as they're going out, they're going to experience opposition. They're going to experience even persecution. And Jesus warns about this. In verse 17, he tells them, Beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. Now, While some of them would receive that well, he warns in verse 21 here, brother will betray brother to death, 
and a father his child, and the children will rise up against the parents and cause them to be put to death. Then he gives these warm, encouraging words here. You'll be hated. You'll be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end that will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through all the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Of course, the presence of persecution should not deter true believers from being faithful to Christ. And starting in verse 24 then, Jesus begins to lay down what is the true cost of discipleship. What is it going to cost us as believers to be faithful to him? Then he assures them in verse 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. And yet some will deny the Lord. Some will deny him. In fact, the gospel itself will divide people into categories, into two groups. Family and friends, it will divide. Many, many people. But Jesus assures again in verse 39, He who has found life will not lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. So the gospel does its work. And Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword, and it does divide. The calling here is very high. And you get to the end of verse 39 after this very long discourse. End of verse 39, and you could feel a little bit pent up and a little bit concerned. I'm going to go be faithful. Certainly that's what they're thinking, but this applies even to us. I'm going to be faithful. It's going to cost me friends. It's going to cost me family. It's going to cost me relationships. I'm going to be persecuted. I might even lose my life. And on top of that, Jesus is commanding that I be faithful, that I am, I'm suffering the way that he suffered. But then he also gives me cause to not be worried, but still there is a high calling. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. That's hard. That's hard to hear. It's hard to bear. So the calling is high, but guess what? So is the reward. The reward is also very high. But the Lord has one more thing to say here. We didn't finish this the last time we were together, but he has one more thing to say to the disciples before he sends them out into the ministry field. That's what we're going to look at today. Verses 40 through 42. So I'm in Matthew chapter 10, the last three verses of this chapter before he finishes his discourse. These are the words he gives to the disciples. Let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever, in the name of a disciple, gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Now, there are, I believe, several truths wrapped up in these statements here. The first thing we are meant to see is this interlocking connection between the disciples and Christ and the Father. In many ways, if you look at verse 40, in many ways, this verse really feels in a lot of cases like the high priestly prayer in John 17. All those of you who are familiar with John 17, where he prays for the disciples and says that I desire that that they might be in me as I am in you and that they might be in us. And there's this connection between the disciples of Christ, the church and Christ and the Father. There is an interlocking connection. Again, an unbreakable link, an indestructible unity. 
that exists there. And so Jesus is not intending to go to all these people in the world by himself. He's not going to go to all these cities. That's why he's sending the disciples. He's not going to be preaching the gospel and entreating every single person to respond to him personally. Or rather, he's going to send these 12 men as delegates, as apostles. An apostle is one who is sent with authority. The idea is that when these apostles, they go and they make their plea to the people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it it is as though Jesus himself is going and making his plea to them. In fact, Paul articulates this in 2 Corinthians 5.20, saying, We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So when Paul goes out, when the disciples go out, and by virtue, when you and I go out, and we bring this gospel message of good news to lost people, we make the same exact entreaty that the apostles did. We're ambassadors for Christ, and we urge you, we plead with you, we beg you on his behalf to be reconciled to him. So Jesus is making his entreaty through them. The apostles are given not their own inherent authority, They couldn't walk around and say, well, you guys, I'm an apostle. They had nothing inherently of themselves. Rather, their authority was a delegated authority from Jesus Christ to offer salvation to lost people through the proclamation of the gospel. Which is why Jesus says in verse 40, he who receives you receives me. They receive you. Now, again, in context, the you he's talking to are the disciples. He's telling these men, these 12 disciples, you, when they receive you guys, they receive me. And really, anybody who accepts the disciples in the message are, again, ultimately accepting Christ and his message. But Jesus goes even further than that. He goes a step beyond. He grounds his own authority in that of the Father. He continues, he says, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. All throughout the Gospels, over and over and over and over again, it's very clear that the Son proceeds from the Father. We understand that ontologically that the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that there there are not three gods, there is one triune God who exists eternally in three distinct persons. And so the Son is a different person of the Trinity than the Father, but yet they are inextricably linked. And the Son proceeds from the Father to God's people. In John 8, just to give an example, the crowds are going after Jesus because of his teaching. They're claiming that, that they're connected to God the Father through their ancestry, through Abraham. And they attack him and they say, well, we don't know what you're saying, but we're Abraham's offspring. We're his children. So therefore, we have the corner of truth and you don't. Yet they're claiming to be of Abraham. They're claiming to be of God. And yet they want to kill Jesus, the Son of God. And he responds to them in John 8, 42. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative. He sent me. I'm not here because of me, even though he could be. He says, I'm here because the father sent me. John ten thirty. Jesus also proclaimed, I and the father are one. He doesn't mean ontologically the exact same person. He's talking about unity or together. There's no break. The bond is is unbreakable. And so to get to God, you have to go through his son. You must. He is the only mediator between God and man, according to 1 Timothy 2.5. See, everybody wants to get to God these days, but they want to get to God on their own terms. 
I love the idea of being good with God. Me and God, yeah, the big man upstairs, oh, we're, we're good. Well, but do you know Jesus? Well, I don't need to know Jesus. Well, guess what? He's the only way to God the Father. You cannot go to God without going through the Son. That is the essence of why we have the gospel. It's the good news of being reconciled to the Father through the work of the Son. You have to. Without Jesus, there's nothing. And that was Israel's dilemma for centuries. See, God had given them the sacrificial system to help them understand what he required for a relationship. What did he require? Well, his holiness was required, and to manifest his holiness, sin had to be atoned for. God had a righteous standard, still does. So despite this God-given system of understanding sacrifice, that without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sins, they didn't understand that and they balked against it. It wasn't good enough for them. And so they, they branched out into either legalism, thinking they could somehow earn their own righteousness by law-keeping, or they branched out into paganism. Well, maybe if I go and hang out with these other false gods, I can get to him and he'll be happy with that. Syncretism. But both are wrong. And then Christ comes. Jesus shows up. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. But they didn't like that either. They didn't like that. God himself came to earth wrapped in a body and talked to them, and they didn't like it. Now he's telling the disciples that if people want God and God's salvation, they must receive Christ, and they must receive Christ's ambassadors. You can't get to God your own way. God has laid it out himself. And countless thousands of people are in heaven right now Not because they heard the gospel from Jesus' own lips, but because they heard the gospel from his apostles. And in believing their word, they received Christ. And in receiving Christ, they received God and his kingdom. Now Paul affirms this in his letter to the Galatians. He, He is sick, and he writes the Galatians a letter because they cared for him. He tells them lots of things, but in Galatians 4.14... He's encouraged, he's he's happy about this, that they received and they took care of him. And he says, you received me as an angel from God, as Christ Jesus himself. You, You cared for me in such a way, it's as if you were caring for Jesus in my place. You love me so much. So even Paul understood this unbreakable link between the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the ministry of Christ himself. But Jesus intends to apply this truth even further, even further. Now, at this point, we do, in terms of the scholarly discussion, we do see some slight disagreement with the commentators. And every, I've told you this before, but every week I study the text on my own. I kind of look at it. I examine the verses. I, I pull them apart to put it back together again. But I also read other sources. I want to make sure I'm, that my understanding is connected to church history, that I, I go as far back as I can. I go as broadly as I can. I want to make sure that I'm not teaching you something that's never been taught before. So what is, the, what is the consensus of what the church has always believed? And on most weeks, it's pretty clear. It's about the same. But there are verses that are difficult to understand, and there's some, a slight disagreement on the interpretation of some verses. As a general rule of thumb, when scholars all don't agree, I tend to tread pretty lightly, because I know I'm entering to, to tumultuous waters, if you will, because if these brilliant guys can't figure this out, then what am I going to do? But I, I hope and I pray, I ask God for help, 
But whenever there is disagreement, I work harder to try to pick it apart and, and navigate it, knowing there's some leeway there and there's room for, for understanding. What do these two verses mean? What are these all about? Some scholars have seen that these verses here are the many designations of believers. So verses 40, 41, and 42, there's a descending list of perceived importance in the kingdom. Now I want you to look at this and you can see it. He first notes when they receive you, now the you is the apostles, they receive me and they receive the Father. So you have kind of this first sort of establishing group. And then in verse 41, you see that they're receiving a prophet, which is another higher rank, if you will, of of ministry work, a prophet, Then you see a righteous man, and then you see disciple, then you see little one. Now, again, the observation that's been made by many is that that the Lord is intending to sort of span the entire scope of the church in terms of visible, visible, perceivable rank. We know that there's no rank in the kingdom of God, but we understand that there are certain uh, ministries that God has given to certain people. So from prophets and righteous men all the way down to normal disciples and even little ones, those who are seemingly insignificant in appearance in verse 42. In this way, Jesus would be saying that everyone in the kingdom is represented here, which is true, and that everyone's testimony is important. And again, we would verify, yes, that's true. To be absolutely clear, that notion that all of our testimony from the top to the bottom, from left to right, across the board, All of our testimony matters. That's true. Nothing takes away from that sentiment. The thing that I disagree with, and the thing that many have sort of navigated here, is I don't think that this structuring is how Jesus presents his teaching. And I'll explain what I mean here. When you study Jesus' teaching, you frequently see this pattern that emerges. Frequently, when Jesus will teach about something, and he'll use illustrations, he'll make some big controversial statement. Okay, he'll, make a very, he'll make a statement that just shocks people. There's gasps in the room. He'll make a big, huge statement, and then he will prove and illustrate the truth of that statement using a very simple analogy. It's like this. It's like water. It's like wheat. It's like a new baby. He'll make some kind of a very simple, disarming statement that backs up the truth of the first statement he's made, and then he'll circle back around, and he'll apply that truth and verify his claim even more. So it's a very powerful uh, rhetorical tactic. Let me give you a couple examples. Matthew 6, 27, uh, 25 through 27. Here's the big statement. Do not be anxious about your life. Okay, that's a, that's a bold statement. Don't worry about anything. Now, people who worry are, what do you mean don't worry about anything? Well, Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life. And then he gives a very simple illustration. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't store in barns, right? The Heavenly Father feeds them. People go, oh, that's true. And then the application, the big payoff is, so therefore, aren't you worth much more than they are? And people go, that's true, I am, yes. So therefore, don't worry about your life. You see that? Very profound statement, simple illustration, then he recaps. Uh, John chapter 3, big statement, you must be born again by the Spirit. And Nicodemus is going, what are you talking about? That's a big claim. Nicodemus is questioning, how can this be? And then Jesus gives a simple illustration. The wind blows where it wishes. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. Nicodemus would say, that's true, right? You see, so therefore, the Spirit of God works the same way. That's the same way that everybody is born again by the Spirit. It's like the wind. And Nicodemus would go, okay, all right, I can see that. 
So Jesus is using very simple illustrations to, to teach on very complicated or profound truth. This pattern he repeats all the time. Again, because I believe it's effective. And I think that that's what he's doing here. See, the big statement here is that all who receive this, the disciples are receiving Christ, and all who receive Christ are receiving the eternal God of salvation and of all creation. So if you receive the disciples, by virtue you're receiving the Most High God. That's a profound statement. Any Jewish ears that have been like, wait a second here. We had to go through the priest. We had to go to Moses. We had to go to the temple. There was the, the Shekinah glory. We had the curtains. We had the, all the stuff. You, would, you mean to tell me that we can get to God the Creator through talking to one of your disciples? Are you out of your mind? That's not true at all. That's the big statement. And the question that kind of arises out of that in conjunction with that is, how do I know that I will receive eternal life through the message of one of your deputized fishermen? How do I know that what this message is being offered to me, this is a true message, how do I know that this is going to come true for me? How do I know that the connection holds up? So Jesus gives them two axiomatic, self-evident examples in verse 41. These two examples, they're very plain. They're very clear. These would have been accepted as basic logic. Look at verse 41. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Let me start with the first one. A prophet. So here's how this works. A prophet, and he doesn't give us any specifics here. He just says a prophet. A prophet comes to you. He comes to your house, and he says, I'm a prophet, and I have a message for you. Okay? Now, if you accept that person as a prophet because he is a prophet, and you bring him into your home, and you heed the message that he gives you, whatever message that he has to give to you is then applied to you. You receive that message. So if the prophecy is this, he comes to you, prophet comes to you, and he says, you'll receive $1,000 in the mail. I'm just making something up, okay? You're going to receive all this money, and you receive that message. You say, all right, prophet, I believe you then the payoff for that, if he really is a prophet, is that you will receive that reward. You'll receive that $1,000. Again, I'm simply illustrating. Next, he says, if a well-known righteous man comes to you and you receive him into your house as a guest, whatever reward there is for hosting a righteous man, an honored person, whether the reward is gratitude or maybe the reward is a gift that he offers you or the prestige of having a righteous man in your home or fellowship, whatever it would be, is going to be yours because you have received this righteous man into your house. Both of these illustrations are very straightforward. They're very simple. And everybody listening to Jesus saying this would have nodded their head and said, well, that makes sense. If I receive a prophet in the name of a prophet, because he is a prophet, I'll receive his reward. Same thing with a righteous man. So this is, this is they're nodding their heads. They're agreeing with this. That's true. Now, if that's true, then here comes the payoff. The application and the validation of Jesus' statement in verse 42. He says this, And whoever, in the name of a disciple, gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. 
The grammar here, I believe, is slightly confusing. I checked other translations. The NASB, the New American Standard, which is the Bible that we use here in the pulpit, uh, that follows a very rigid, literal uh, translation, which I think normally works out just fine. But in the ESV, it reads this way. However, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So, following this through, the disciples are sent out with the gospel. Whoever responds to them and receives them positively, in effect, they're receiving Christ, and therefore they're receiving God. And this is further illustrated in verse 41. In the same way, if you receive a prophet or a righteous man, you'll receive whatever reward follows them. But here's the million-dollar question. How does Jesus ultimately advance his kingdom. The apostles are gone. There are no more apostles today. And people argue and differ and bicker over that. I believe it's 100% true. The scriptures affirm that. Testimony, history, experience affirms that there are no more apostles. Those who are sent with delegated authority, ambassadors for Christ, to speak on behalf of Christ, to give forth a new revelation from Christ, there are no more apostles. So how does God build his kingdom today? Has he used the apostles and prophets? Yes, he has. Has he used those who are righteous and those who are noble? Yes, he has. He still does. But the alarming truth of verse 42 is that the kingdom of God advances through the faithful witness of even his little ones. Even his little ones. Who are little ones? What is he talking about? In Matthew 18, Jesus gives an illustration of those who would cause believers to stumble. And he likens his believers, little ones, to children. And as an object lesson, he actually grabs a child. There's there's some bickering and dissension in the room. He grabs a child, a small child, and he brings the child over. And I just imagine in my mind, Jesus placing his hands on the back of the child's shoulders and then talking and saying, look, if you receive one of these, one of the believers as this little child... He says, you must have the faith of a child. Remember this this discourse? But he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them to then drown themselves in the bottom of the ocean. Remember this discourse? It's powerful language. He's warning against those who would cause believers to stumble. I believe there's also practical application for God's love for children. But the primary lesson here is that God, through Christ, is warning those who would cause his children, his believers, to stumble. The purpose is to speak about believers. Now again, here in Matthew 10, 42, little ones are most certainly believers. They're you and me. Although they also might include young children who have believed. There are those who are younger in the faith, those who profess faith at a very young age. I've baptized younger believers I I try to be careful with how far I go. I want the children to understand what they're putting their faith in and what they're believing in. But the kingdom belongs to all who would repent and believe in Christ. And so those who are little in the faith, those who are believers, those who are seemingly, seemingly insignificant to the world, and scholars agree that when he talks about little ones, he's talking about believers. They're not prominent ministry leaders or evangelists who travel the globe and do amazing things. They're not elders and deacons. 
They're not those who have dynamic spiritual abilities. They're not those who are doing amazing, seemingly big, huge, amazing. They're not building ministries and building empires for Christ. Maybe they're quiet. Maybe they're not well-spoken. Maybe they're young in the faith. Maybe they're new to the faith. They're not ones of visible prominence to the outside world. Again, to the outside world, those little Christians have nothing to offer. But seeing is not believing, is it? But to Christ, to Christ, they are His beloved children. We are His beloved children. And by virtue of that, we are appointed ambassadors of the kingdom. Even the littlest one, the littlest one, it does not make a difference. God loves to use the lowly and the weak and the insignificant and the ignorant and the small. Why? Why does God love to use small believers like you and me? Why does He do it? So that when He builds His kingdom... Through them, he gets all the glory. See, if you're a big, prominent, powerful, notable believer, and you do all these amazing things, the temptation and the sinful heart says, wow, you are amazing. I want to be one of your fans. I'll tell you that Christian celebrity is an awful thing. I believe it's fair and right to pay honor to whom honor is due, but as soon as you start lifting people up onto a pedestal in the place where Christ belongs, we're we're wrong here. And I'll tell you, the church has followed the world in many regards in, in making these, these believers uh, into celebrities. Now, I praise God that he allows me to write and to do things, and it's, it's great because I want to make an impact. But as soon as someone puts me in a place where I don't belong, not only have they sinned, but I have sinned in allowing myself to be there. We have to be very, very careful. You and I are servants. Paul calls himself a doulos theu, a slave of God. And more often than not, people don't come to Christ necessarily through those kinds of ministries. They come through the faithfulness of Christ's little ones. The little ones. And look how it happens. Verse 42. You have a person receiving the most insignificant believers as disciples. So this this little one comes to a person and they say, "I, I I have a message for you. And the person says, all right, well, you're a disciple of Christ, right? Yes, I am. They receive an insignificant disciple. Well, how do they receive them? Do they roll out the red carpet? Oh, we've got a disciple of Christ in our midst. Do they do that? No. He says, even if, I love this, even if they receive them and give them a cup of cold water to drink, the most insignificant of gestures, you go to their house and they say, I don't really have any, I can't really feed you dinner. Um, you want a glass of water? Sure. Even the most insignificant gesture for the most insignificant person, even in that humble exchange, God will offer the reward of salvation if you receive their message. This is not a pomp and circumstance thing. This is not an altar call kind of thing. This is very small, very intimate, very insignificant, but this is how God advances His kingdom. I think about this, I ponder this, Hebrews 13, 1 and 2, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. 
When someone comes to your home, now be careful how you do this. When someone comes to your home and they have the message of the gospel, how do you receive them? When someone from church calls you and says, I'd like to come and talk to you. I want to have fellowship with you. Or, or maybe they say, would you like to come to my house for, for lunch or for dinner? And maybe, they, maybe they live in a rough neighborhood and you're not so sure what the neighborhood looks like, but they, the little ones of Christ, have called you and said, will you come and fellowship with me? And you say, absolutely, I'd love to come see you. I'd love to spend time with you. Even that small little interaction. I'll tell you, this is a Trojan horse of evangelism against the kingdom of darkness. This is how God brings this gospel with a sharp sword into all these piercing areas of darkness. The humble, seemingly insignificant believer, the little one, comes to a person with a meager gospel presentation. And Satan goes, look, you got to give me, you got to be kidding me. Because he he wants to go after the Billy Grahams of the world. But a little one who comes with the gospel, he doesn't care about them, right? Until he realizes what they have. You have the eternal gospel of Christ in your chest, in your heart, and you're going to share this with someone? So seemingly insignificant. And the hearer responds and receives them with even the most insignificant kindness. Even the smallest gesture, a cup of cold water. And when they receive that believer and they accept the message of the gospel, they have just welcomed Jesus Christ into their home. He has come through such an insignificant means. And he's bringing with him the kingdom of God and Almighty God. Whoever receives you receives me and receives God. This is amazing truth that God would use people like you and me, insignificant, to advance the kingdom And the church is the only institution, the only people, the only assemble, the only power that God will sustain through the generations. Nations will rise and fall and burn. The church remains. And it will continue to remain and advance against the kingdom of darkness until Christ comes. Jesus says, I tell you, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's promise. Well, how is he doing it? We're not marching with swords and beating this way, the way that the world thinks we're going to attack, they think that we're going to attack that way. No, 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 no. We're coming in stealth with the gospel. My friend, I want to talk to you because I love you. I want to talk to you about a gospel that has changed my life. My life was a wreck, but more than my life being a wreck, I was estranged from God and I was going to hell. But Jesus, through his kindness, And his sacrifice, he saved me. And whatever I have is of Christ. And I want you to have the same thing. Can I come over and talk to you? Can I share a cup of water with you? Power. God advances his kingdom through conversations like that. Beloved, did you know that if you have Christ as your Savior, you carry him with you everywhere you go? That you have Almighty God with you. Paul says, he's in me through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And what other people receive you and receive your gospel, they're receiving Christ in you. And they come to know Jesus and they come to be saved and born again through your interactions. Now, how does this all work in terms of the mystery? I have no idea. God works in ways that are mysterious. Remember, he says, it's like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going, but that's the way the ministry of the Spirit works. 
But God rewards such a reception, such a conversation, such an interaction. He rewards that with eternal life and the full riches of heaven. The Lord loves to use the most insignificant people to bring about the most significant ministry or message in human history. In God's economy, there are no insignificant believers. All of you, all of you, if you know Christ, all of you are His soldiers. All of you are His messengers. All of you are His beloved disciples who He's given His life for. And if you have the gospel, then you have been deputized by God through Christ as an ambassador of the King of Heaven. And Christ is watching. He knows who's doing the work. He knows what you're talking about. Maybe the world doesn't see. Maybe, maybe your church, maybe I'll never see what you do, what you talk about. But God knows. He knows who's in your house. He knows who you're calling and texting and talking to and trying to lead to, to the Lord. He sees what you're doing. He takes notice and He sees them as they really are. I'll tell you, so-and-so... Boy, they don't seem like they're much of the rest of the world, but boy, they are faithful. And I would give, I would give a thousand prominent evangelists for one or two faithful believers. I don't mean to set up a false dichotomy, my friends, but you know what I'm talking about. It's the faithfulness of the seemingly insignificant. I want to close with the words of Jesus in Matthew 25. Go to Matthew 25. Matthew 25 concludes what is known as the Olivet Discourse. It is a discourse about the end of days and the return of Christ and His second coming. And He's teaching on the end of days. He's teaching this this eschatology, this theology of of the last days of the end times. And He brings it all to a conclusion at the end of Matthew 25. And he says this, starting in verse 31. I'm in Matthew 25, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put His sheep on the right, on his right and the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them... You did it to me. Then he will say also to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. 
I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they will themselves also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Brothers and sisters, it matters what we do. This is not about making a a huge imprint or branding Harvest Bible Church. I love that our church has a witness here, but it's not about the visible. It is about what you, the body of Christ, are doing. The ministry that you have, the conversations that you undertake, the phone calls you make, the visitations you do, the service you offer. It is about your ministry to other people, certainly to those in the body of Christ, but also to those who are outside and are coming in. Because when you do this, when you extend even a cup of cold water to those in friendship and in kindness and give them the gospel and they come into the kingdom, guess what? Christ remembers that. And I was naked, I was thirsty, I was hungry, I was afraid, and you came to me. And you do so in your faithfulness. And so that is our charge as we go. And that's their charge, the disciples, as they were about to go out into Israel to preach the gospel. He says, go to everybody and tell them the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And every single interaction you have matters to God. What you do, beloved, matters to God. And so as you go, preach the gospel. Tell people, yes, you have sinned and I have sinned against a holy God. But there is hope for you in the gospel that Jesus Christ gave Himself for sinners like you and me. And if you would turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone, you'll have forgiveness, you'll have eternal life, you'll have a seat with the Father in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to You that You've given us such marvelous words. And more than even the words, You've given us an amazing ministry. That God, You build Your kingdom not through the the mighty and the powerful, even though through some you do. But God, you have told us very explicitly that you love to use those who are not mighty and not noble and even little in the eyes of the world to advance your kingdom against the wicked kingdom of darkness. That you lead people out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son, You do that through these insignificant interactions and conversations and kindnesses and acts of service. That you work in the midst of our frailty. God, I'm reminded even last week we talked about how through even though we're weak, you're made strong. That even in our weakness, even in our lowly position, you advance your kingdom. So God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts today not to regard ourselves as having no value in the kingdom. Lord, maybe I don't have amazing gifts or marketable skills or maybe I'm not prominent. But Lord, I would ask You to use me and use me in a mighty way. Use my faithfulness. Use my talents. Use my whatever quirky way I have 
Use me. Send me, O Lord, as Isaiah would say. Send me, I will go. And God, I know that you delight yourself. You delight yourself to send those who the world is not expecting. Covert operators for the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be a whole church full of those. God, glorify yourself through this assembly. Make us mighty, not in our own eyes, but make us mighty in your eyes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.